Chapter Eleven of The Turmoil. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bologna Times. The Turmoil, Volume One of the Growth Trilogy by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Eleven. Sheridan had decided to conclude his day's work early that afternoon, and at about two o'clock he left his office with a man of affairs from foreign parts, who had traveled far for a business conference with Sheridan and his colleagues. Herr Favre, in spite of his French name, was a gentleman of Bavaria. It was his first visit to our country, and Sheridan took pleasure in showing him the sights of the country's finest city. They got into an open car at the main entrance of Sheridan Building, and were driven first, slowly and momentously, through the wholesale district and the retail district. Then more rapidly they inspected the packing houses and the stockyards, then skirmished over the park system and boulevards, and after that whizzed through the residence section on their way to the factories and foundries. Oh, Cray, observed Herr Favre, smiling. Cray, echoed Sheridan. I don't know what you mean, Cray. No, right, said Herr Favre, with a wave of his hand toward the long rows of houses on both sides of the street. No white lace window curtains. Oh, Cray, lace window curtains. Oh, I see. Sheridan laughed indulgently. You mean gray. No, they ain't. They're white. I never saw any gray ones. Herr Favre shook his head, much amused. There are no white ones, he said. There is no white anything in your city. No white window curtains. No white house. No white people. He pointed upward. Smoke! Then he sniffed the air and clasped his nose between forefinger and thumb. Smoke! Smoke everywhere! Smoke in your insides! He tapped his chest. Smoke in your lungs! Oh! Smoke! Sheridan cried with gusto, drawing in a deep breath and patently finding it delicious. You bet we got smoke! Expensive! said Herr Favre. Ruins foliage, ruins fabrics. Maybe in summer it is not so bad, but I wonder your wife's will bear it. Sheridan laughed uproariously. <laughs> they know it means new spring hats for em. They must need many, too, said the visitor. New hats, new all things, but nothing white. In Munchen, we could not do it. We are a safing people. Where's that? In Munchen. You say Munich. Well, I've never been to Munich, but I took in the Mediterranean trip, and I tell you, outside of some right good scenery, all I saw was mighty dirty and mighty shiftless and mighty run down at the heel. Now, coming right down to it, Mr. Farver, 
Wouldn't you rather live here in this town than in Munich? I know you got more enterprise up there than the part of the old country I saw, and I know you're a live businessman and you're associated with others like you, but when it comes to living in a place, wouldn't you heap rather be here than over there? For me, said Herr Favre. No, here I should not think I was living. It would be like the miner who goes into the mine to work. Nothing else. We got a good many good citizens here from your part of the world. They like it. Oh, yes. And Herr Favre laughed deprecatingly. The first generation. They bring them Germany with them. Then, after that, they are Americans like you. He tapped his host big knee genially. You are patriot, so are they. Well, I reckon you must be a pretty hot little patriot yourself, Mr. Favre, Sheridan exclaimed gaily. You certainly stand up for your own town. If you stick to saying you'd rather live there than you would here. Yes, sir. You sure are some patriot to say that, after you've seen our city. It ain't reasonable in you, but I must say I kind of admire you for it. Every man ought to stick up for his own, even when he sees the other fellows got the goods on him. Yet I expect way down deep in your heart, Mr. Farver, you'd rather live right here than any place else in the world, if you had your choice. Man alive, this is God's country, Mr. Farver, and a blind man couldn't help seeing it. You couldn't stand where you do and a business way and not see it. Soho boy. Here we are. This is the big works, and I'll show you something now that'll make your eyes stick out. They had arrived at the pump works, and for an hour Mr. Favor was personally conducted and personally instructed by the founder and president, the buzzing queen bee of those buzzing hives. Now I'll take you for a spin in the country, said Sheridan, when at last they came out to the car again. We'll take a breezer. But with his foot on the step, he paused to hail a neat young man who came out of the office smiling, a greeting. Hello, young fellow, Sheridan said heartily. On the job, are you, Jimmy? Ha! They don't catch you off of it very often, I guess, though I do hear you go automobile bill riding in the country sometimes with a mighty fine-looking girl settin' up beside you. He roared with laughter, clapping his son on the shoulder. That's all right with me, if it is with her. So, Jimmy, well, when we gonna move into your new warehouses? Monday? Sunday, if you want to, said Jim. No! cried his father, delighted. Don't tell me you're going to keep your word about dates. That's no way to do contracting. Never heard of a contractor yet. Didn't want more time. They'll be all ready for you on the minute, said Jim. I'm going over both of them now, with Lynx and Sherman, from foundation to roof. I guess they'll pass inspection, too. Well, then, when you get through with that, said his father. You go and take your girl out riding. By George, you've earned it. 
You tell her you stand high with me. He stepped into the car, waving a waggish farewell, and when the wheels were in motion again, he turned upon his companion a broad face, literally shining with pride. That's my boy, Jimmy, he said. Fine young man, yes, said Herr Favre. I got two of the finest boys, said Sheridan. I got two of the finest boys God ever made, and that's a fact, Mr. Farver. Jim's the oldest, and I tell you, they got to get up the day before, if they expect to catch him in bed. My other boy, Roscoe, he's always to the good, too. But Jim's a wizard. You saw them two new process warehouses? Just about finished? Well, Jim built em. I'll tell you about that, Mr. Farver. And he recited this history, describing the new process at length. In fact, he had such pride in Jim's achievement that he told Herr Favre all about it more than once. Fine young man, yes, repeated the good Munchner, three quarters of an hour later. They were many miles out in the open country by this time. He is that, said Sheridan, adding as if confidentially, I got a fine family, Mr. Farver, fine children. I got a daughter now. You take her and put her anywhere you please, and she'll shine up with any of em. There's culture and refinement and society in this town by the carload, and here lately she's been getting right in the thick of it. Her and my daughter-in-law, both. I got a mighty fine daughter-in-law, Mr. Farver. I'm going to get you up for a meal with us before you leave town, and you'll see. And, well, sir, from all I hear, the two of em been holding their own with the best. Myself? I and the wife never had much time for much of that kind of doings, but it's all right and good for the children, and my daughter, she's always kind of taken to it. I'll read you a poem she wrote when I get you up at the house. She wrote it in school and took the first prize for poetry with it. I tell you, they don't make em any smarter than that girl, Mr. Farver. Yes, sir. Take us all around. We're a pretty happy family. Yes, sir. Roscoe hasn't got any children yet, and I haven't ever spoke to him and his wife about it. It's kind of a delicate matter. But it's about time the wife and I saw some grandchildren growing up around us. I certainly do hanker for about four or five little curly-head rascals to take on my knee. Boys, I hope, of course. That's only natural. Jim's got his eye on a mighty splendid-looking girl. Lives right next door to us. I expect you heard me joshing him about it yonder. She's one of the old blue bloods here, and I guess it was a mighty good stock to raise her. She's one of these girls that stand right up and look at you. And pretty? She's the prettiest thing you ever saw. Good size, too. Good health and good sense. Jim will be just right if he gets her. I must say it tickles me to think of the way that boy took a hold of that job back yonder. Four months and a half. Yes, sir. He expanded this theme once more, and thus he continued to entertain the stranger throughout the long drive. Darkness had fallen before they reached the city on their return, and it was after five when Sheridan allowed Herr Favre to descend at the door of his hotel, where boys were shrieking extra editions of the evening paper. Now, good night, Mr. Farver, said Sheridan leaning from the car to shake hands with his guest. Don't forget I'm 
Going to come round and take you up to... Go on. Go on away, boy. A newsboy had thrust himself almost between them, yelling, Extry! Second extry! Extry! All about the horrible accident! Extry! Get out! laughed Sheridan. Who wants to read about accidents? Get out! The boy moved away philosophically. Extry! Extry! he shrilled. Three men killed! Extry! Millionaire killed! Two other men killed! Extry! Extry! Don't forget, Mr. Farver. Sheridan completed his interrupted farewells. I'll come by to take you up to our house for dinner. I'll be here for you about half-past five tomorrow afternoon. Hope you enjoyed the drive much as I have. Good night. Good night. He leaned back, speaking to the chauffeur. Now you can take me round to the Central City Barbershop, boy. I want to get a shave before I go up home. Extra! Extra! screamed the newsboys, zigzagging among the crowds like bats in the dusk. Extra! All about the horrible accident! Extra! It struck Sheridan that the papers sent out too many extras. They printed extras for all sorts of petty crimes and casualties. It was a mistake, he decided, critically. Crying wolf too often wouldn't sell the goods. It was bad business. The papers would make more in the long run, he was sure, if they published an extra only when something of real importance happened. Extra! All about the horrible accent! Extra! A boy squawked under his nose as he descended from the car. Go on away, said Sheridan gruffly, though he smiled. He liked to see the youngsters working so noisily to get on in the world. But as he crossed the pavement to the brilliant glass doors of the barber shop, a second newsboy grabbed the arm of the one who had thus cried his wares. Say, Yalom, said the second, hoarse with awe. Ain't you know who that is? Who? It's Sheridan. Chased, cried the first, staring insanely. At about the same hour, four times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, Sheridan stopped at the shop to be shaved by the head barber. The barbers were Negroes. He was their great man, and it was their habit to give him a reception, his entrance being always the signal for a flurry of jocular hospitality, followed by general excesses of briskness and gaiety. But it was not so this evening. The shop was crowded. Copies of the extra were being read by men waiting, and by men in the latter stages of treatment. Extras lay upon vacant seats, and showed from the pockets of hanging coats. There was a loud chatter between the practitioners and their recumbent patients, a vocal charivari, which stopped abruptly as Sheridan opened the door. His name seemed to fizz in the air like the last sputtering of a firework. The barbers stopped shaving and clipping. Lathered men turned their prostrate heads to stare, and there was a moment of amazing silence in the shop. The head barber, nearest the door, stood like a barber in a tableau. His left hand held stretched between thumb and forefinger, an elastic section 
of his helpless customer's cheek, while his right hand hung poised over it, the razor motionless. And then, roused from trance by the door's closing, he accepted the fact of Sheridan's presence. The barber remembered that there are no circumstances in life, or just after it, under which a man does not need to be shaved. He stepped forward, profoundly grave. "'I'll be through with this man in the chair one minute, Mr. Sheridan,' he said, in a hushed tone. "'Yes, sir.' And of a solemn Negro youth who stood by, gazing stupidly. "'You gonna resign?' he demanded in a fierce undertone. "'You gonna take Miss Sheridan's coat?' He sent an angry look round the shop, and the barbers, taking his meaning, averted their eyes and fell to work, the murmur of subdued conversation buzzing from chair to chair. "'You sit down one minute, Miss Sheridan,' said the head barber, gently. "'I fixed a nice chair for you to wait in.' "'Never mind,' said Sheridan. "'Go on, get through with your man.' "'Yes, sir.' and he went quickly back to his chair on tiptoe, followed by Sheridan's puzzled gaze. Something had gone wrong in the shop, evidently. Sheridan did not know what to make of it. Ordinarily he would have shouted a hilarious demand for the meaning of the mystery, but an inexplicable silence had been imposed upon him by the hush that fell upon his entrance, and by the odd look every man in the shop had bent upon him. Vaguely disquieted, he walked to one of the seats in the rear of the shop, and looked up and down the two lines of barbers, catching quickly shifted, furtive glances here and there. He made this brief survey after wondering if one of the barbers had died suddenly that day, or the night before, but there was no vacancy in either line. The seat next to his was unoccupied, but someone had left a copy of the extra there, and frowning, he picked it up and glanced at it. The first of the swollen display lines had little meaning to him. Fatally faulty. New process roof collapses, hurrying capitalist to death with inventor. Seven escape when crash comes. Death claims. Thus far had he read when a thin hand fell upon the paper, covering the print from his eyes. And looking up, he saw Bibbs standing before him, pale and gentle, immeasurably compassionate. I've come for you, father, said Bibbs. Here's the boy with your coat and hat. Put them on and come home. And even then Sheridan did not understand. So secure was he in the strength and bigness of everything that was his, he did not know what calamity had befallen him. But he was frightened. Without a word he followed Bibbs heavily out through the still shop. But as they reached the pavement he stopped short and, grasping his son's sleeve with shaking fingers, swung him round so they stood face to face. What? What? His mouth could not do him the service he asked of it. He was so frightened. Extry! screamed a newsboy straight in his face. Young Northside millionaire instantly killed. Extry! Not Jim! said Sheridan. Bibbs caught his father's hand in his own. "'And you come to tell me that?' Sheridan did not know what he said, but in those first words, and in the first anguish of the big, stricken face,
Bibbs understood the unuttered cry of accusation. Why wasn't it you? End of chapter 11